2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: I never expected to hear anything like this. To this day, it still is shocking and hard for me to explain.
2: Welcome to Betrayal, everyone. I'm your host, Darren Karp. In today's episode, we find a brotherly betrayal that seemed so clearly avoidable from the very beginning. It's a story of how lust for power can get the best of us and the lengths that seemingly ordinary people will go through in order to keep it. And this week, I had to ask one of my true crime powerhouses to come help me break down this truly mind-boggling episode of Betrayal. He's a true crime journalist and author. You've seen him on some of your favorite ID shows, and he's currently a co-host of the wildly popular true crime podcast, Jensen and Holes, The Murder Squad. It's none other than my friend, Billy Jensen. How you doing, Billy? Good to see you.
0: I'm doing great, Darren. How are you doing?
2: I am doing well. I mean, I couldn't think of a better person to come on and talk about betrayal because, you know, I mean, come on now. You have a, you have a podcast called Murder Squad. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, I wasn't asked to be in the murder squad, which felt like a betrayal to me. I could so understand that. Yes. So that's why you're here. And I just you know, I just want to know, like, why didn't you ask me to be? Why in the didn't squad? we
0: ask? You, you know what? It, yeah, was, it was between tough. you and the guy that solved the Golden State Killer case. And I went. Ooh. I went with the guy that saw the Golden State Killer case, and I'm sorry if I could go back, it might be different. But fair
2: enough. Paul Holes is a good-looking guy, and, and he's got and
0: he's got a a very sugary voice too that, that I love to listen to. And, <laughs> and um, I do not, and, 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 I, and I do not. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a good drinking partner as well. So, um, but yeah, no, I've got I've got that one. I'm also on a podcast called The First Degree. Yes. Um, and, um, I do that with Jack Fanick and Alexis Linklater. And then me and Alexis are on a podcast and a discovery plus special called unraveled, which we did wow. long Island serial killer first. And then we did this, uh, this stalking case called the stalkers web, which is horrific. Uh, you want to talk about betrayal. Um, and, uh, we're doing, we have three more of those that are, they're going to be coming out like seven podcasts and then a TV special. So it's kind of neat that you get to see everything wow. at the end that you were listening to. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's beautiful. I love hearing that. I mean, and I will say, if you're listening to Betrayal with Darren Karp, you know who Billy Jensen is. But just in case there is the off chance that someone doesn't really know your history, how did you get in to true crime in the first place? Or like, what was that first moment where you kind of knew that you wanted to at least be in this field?
0: I was set to be a crime reporter but mm-hmm. you know I was writing for the New York Times and but uh, I didn't like doing things that were already solved. I didn't like doing things that were already done. I wanted to do unsolved things. So I had to turn around and become an editor, run newspapers so I could do my true crime sort of on the side. And that's what I was doing for 20 years and now, you know, I can uh, I've got enough projects going on where I don't have to work at a newspaper, which is good because most newspapers are pretty much gone.
2: Yeah, yeah, print is dead is what they've always been Unfortunately, saying Unfortunately, yeah. I it's still, a true crime in itself, Billy. It, it, it really <laughs> is.
0: And unfortunate. you know, like every story that you watch or you listen to started with a newspaper story. And, um, you know, it's going to be up to uh, citizen journalists and citizen detectives to pick up that mantle because uh, it's unfortunate.
2: And citizen detective is kind of the same thing as saying an armchair detective, right? I mean, same thing. You're just not in the... You're not in the law enforcement, you're just kind of this normal citizen who's trying to solve these cases. Is that what you mean by that?
0: Correct, yeah. You collect the information, and you give it to law enforcement. Uh, If law enforcement doesn't act, you start working with the family, and then maybe you start working with the press.
2: Well, before we get into this week's case, I imagine you're really helping a lot of families out there. One Drop can really help a lot of people get closure in what we do, and that's really the important thing. So I thank you for doing all the hard work that you've been doing, because I'm sure you've brought... Just a lot of relief to a lot of people out there, even if the finale isn't, you know, they don't want to know that their family member got murdered. But to put those people behind bars, I imagine, is some sort of closure there for them. A
0: little bit. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Yeah, of course. All right. Well, let's get into this week's episode of Betrayal. Butch Pratt is just a 24-year-old college graduate with the world in his hands. He's an all-American kid. The name Butch Pratt says all-American to me uh, in so many ways. He's a popular star athlete with a bright future. He's the dream child that every parent wants. Born and raised in Munhall, Pennsylvania, not too far from Pittsburgh, Butch Pratt was the ticket out for his single mom and brothers. You know, obviously... I know Pittsburgh a little bit, steel town for sure, a very working class kind of area. And I, I imagine, you know, it's very salt of the earth type people. I, I, you know, I went to college in Eastern Pennsylvania, which was maybe about 50 miles from Philadelphia. And it was, it's it, it's very like working class. I could see kind of wanting to get out of Pennsylvania, considering the fact that it's a lot of, it's Philly, it's Pittsburgh, and then kind of not much else. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine, you know, that could be a motivation for, for wanting to kind of like, Get yourself uh, out of definitely.
0: There, right? For an episode of Unraveled, actually, we were just in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and uh, you could see, you know, it's like a quaint little town, and there's the horse and buggies and everything. And but then Amish, it, yes. There, and you're thinking yes, like, okay. okay, this is kind of cool for a couple days, but. For somebody that maybe wants, uh, you know, wants something that's a little bit different. I mean, the houses there were beautiful and I could see having a great life there. But, you know, you could see that if there's somebody there that that wants something a little bit different that you, uh, right. you know, college is going to be the ticket out.
2: So So Butch was the co-captain of the wrestling and football team. And by senior year, he had more than 20 trophies, along with high grades, which obviously got him some college attention and earned Butch some college grants, which. I imagine for someone who's being raised by a single mother on a nurse's salary, this is heaven sent. And in the fall of 1984, Butch leaves Munhall behind to attend Thiel College, a small liberal arts school in the quaint town of Greenville, Pennsylvania, only 90 minutes from his home, so he's close enough to his family there. Before he knows it, he's already pledging the Delta Sigma Phi fraternity and having the quintessential college experience that many people dream about. Were you in a fraternity, Billy, at all? Did you?
0: Absolutely not.
2: Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> not that you're judging. Not other judging at all, Indian, but no, ju- I judging? was
0: not in a fraternity. I was a, you know, a goth punk kid. So fraternities Ooh. were kind of, I, I definitely didn't like fraternities. It was very much like the antithesis of it, but you know what growing up, you know, as I look back, I think of, it would have been kind of cool because, you know, I know that a lot of friends that I do have from high school that do have frat brothers, uh, they're friends for life. So I totally get it.
2: You know, some people before I was in a sorority, but some people used to say that fraternal Greek life was like you're paying for friends because you pay your dues and uh-huh. then you get this kind of, you know, fraternal order. But, you know, listen, I imagine being in a small town like you want that close knit group of guys. So I could understand Butch, especially being an athlete. It's all kind of falling into the genre here. And Butch really did want a close and tight tight knit friend, someone he'd admire and looked up to where they shared similar interests and goals to rule the world after college. It's here at the frat house among his new pledge of brothers where Butch meets a guy named Ed Swiger. And I always think Ed Swiger is an interesting name because I really want to say swagger because he just looks like he's got some swagger to him, but it is Swiger and I just want everyone to know this. So Ed was the more studious student of the two, and he brought that out of Butch. Now, remember, Butch was a good high school student, but college is kind of this different, different game. And despite Butch's gregarious social life, Ed was more focused on the future than most college kids. He had major goals of going to law school. These two frat bros were actually good for one another. Not something you can always say when it comes to fraternity stereotypes, which I think to your point, Billy, is kind of like that term toxic masculinity kind of. To me, if I were to visualize a word, it's fat frat bros uh, drinking solo cups, uh, slam, slashing cans on their heads, and like trying to hook up with women. Is this an accurate portrayal to you?
0: I, I, I don't like you disparaging red solo cups.
2: That's- <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You, 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 you don't mind me disparaging men, but solo yeah, no, cups disparage just too
0: men. Far- our entire, you know, we every day our business is looking at how awful men are so um (laughs) yeah no i don't mind that at all
2: (laughs) to be fair and maybe we'll see this today there are some bad women Mm -hmm. out there as well you know it happens to be more men than i think than women that happen to be uh more violent but it, it does it does plague women too and ed got butch interested in pursuing student government literally anything ed had a passion for butch would follow behind and i gotta say that's I'm not a parent, but I imagine if I had children, I would want my kids when they were going off to be independent to be around people who were good influences, good in school, wanted to have a future after college because you're kind of getting all the you're kind of getting your signals from other college students. And Ed is that person that just impresses a lot of people. He was the fraternity treasurer by sophomore year and by junior year. He was elected student body vice president, all while maintaining a three point eight GPA which is hard to do, let alone pledging a fraternity. So I I give him credit for this. These guys are hardworking, high-performing young people. Their entire future is ahead of them. But by junior year, Butch and Ed had enough of the party life at the frat house, so they got an apartment together off campus. Ed was dating a woman named Kathy, who was another undergraduate. She was head over heels for Ed, given how promising of a future he seemed to have for them as a couple. Butch wanted a better life than what he grew up with, as we were sort of saying. So just to get you in the mindset of where Butch is coming from, during spring break of 1987, just after Butch and Ed move out, their frat house is suddenly burglarized. The fraternity went on a break for 10 days and returned to find that the house had been robbed just ransacked through all 17 rooms had been broken into stereos televisions electronics were taken from nearly every single room, which I just want to pause here because to me, big house, all these heavy electronic equipment are left. Wouldn't you assume that it would be like a group of people stealing this? It couldn't be just one guy stealing. Well, here's
0: the thing going back to 1987, all of the equipment was really, really large. When you talked about a TV, there were no flat screen TVs. A TV took, if it was, probably these were smaller TVs that might add a handle on them, but you got um, a VCR. You, You can really only carry one or two pieces of equipment at the same time. So you're talking about 17 rooms, unless it's a Walkman. I don't even think in 87, maybe there were portable CD players, but not really. Everything except for a Walkman was something that you had to carry with two hands.
1: Right,
2: even a boom box would, you mm-hmm. know, like I'm thinking, you know, this is why we brought here, Billy, to, to be exactly an on the 80s. This is why, why, brought why the, uh, this is we brought the- We needed the old guy. This is why we, we the brought old the guy. old guy,
0: yeah. Tell <laughs> yeah, us about the a... Rubik's Cube, please.
2: <laughs> Tell us a time before when it was just radio, please, Billy. <laughs> Well, they learn that there's no evidence of forced entry into the building or to the individual rooms, so somebody had to have had a pass key in order to get into these areas. I imagine, you know, there. there's not a lot of, it's in the 80s, like you said, maybe there's not a lot of cameras, security footage. I mean, that kind of didn't really come into play in my mind, at least until maybe the late 90s or mm-hmm. the early 2000s. So nowadays, this wouldn't probably happen in the same way. But being a fraternity, they found there could have been a number of people that could have entered, uh, staff maybe, cleaning people, girls, who knows. And security with the access wasn't very strict. Anybody could have gotten hold of a pass key this isn't safe, right?
0: No, I think it's the sign of just, you know, fraternities are supposed to be, fraternities are supposed to be very much like Fast and the Furious. It's about family, okay?
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I know people that stayed in hostels that would never lock their doors, which to me was always wild, because I was like, at least with the fraternity brothers, you kind of know, hostels, it's random strangers, Mm -hmm. and this maybe just as a woman, this freaks me out a lot more than maybe the naivete of some men, but- even though Ed doesn't live there anymore, Ed helps his brothers file insurance claims to recoup their losses. And he actually went around offering advice to a lot of people on how to do that. OK, put your mindset back when you were uh, young, a little bit younger than you are today, Billy. But if, if if your house had just gotten robbed and then a guy immediately came to you who you knew was smart, who you knew had a lot of ambition, is trying to help you kind of offer these and, you know, recoup their losses on these insurance claims, would you find this to be fishy Because of the type of guy he was, or do you think that maybe this is just Ed being helpful?
0: I think it depends on the type of guy he is. If he's a guy that wants to be a lawyer, if he's a guy that that wants to sort of uh, uh, be in charge, he sees that his friends got robbed, he wants to help.
2: Yeah, he was a studious lawyer, Ed. I mean, he had a 3.8 GPA, so he might just be that type of guy. And Billy, I just... You know, listen, I know that you're a little bit older than me, but you can't be at a kegger party in high school, right? You weren't underage drinking, were you, Billy? No.
0: I'm pretty sure that the statute of limitations is over for that,
2: (laughs) given that it was
0: (laughs) 30 years ago.
2: (laughs) Just making sure, Billy, just want to know. But Butch, on the other hand, wasn't worried about the break-in. He was going to go to business school, get his graduate degree in business administration, and that was all he could really be focused on. And with Ed going to law school between their two areas of expertise, Butch believed that they were then going to be able to go into business and be successful together, sort of this budding partnership of these bros, if you will. Now, entering his senior year of college, Steel Valley's most valuable player has set his sights on a successful future in business with his close friend, Ed Swiger. But that's when Ed meets someone new. 36-year-old Linda Carlin isn't just some health club hookup. She's a big player in small-town Greenville, business manager for a local corporation and co-owner of several local properties. She's not a college girl, she's a mature woman that knows how to get money and power and influence all of which she had. Now, Billy, I am I am a gay woman, okay? But 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 I don't have the same maybe stupidity when it comes to women that a lot of men, uh, heterosexual men do. So as you can imagine, a 21-year-old college guy getting attention from a successful 36-year-old woman is hot.
0: It's hot. And it's also, you have to remember, when you're in college, you have no money. And (laughs) I remember just like saving up to get this particular chicken sandwich And I like saved money, (laughs) literally, it was a chicken sandwich. And I was like, I'm not going to get it this week. I'm going to get it next week. I'm going to say, and it was, so to have somebody come into your life, that is uh, somebody that's older, that someone that's paying attention to you, someone that's giving you sex and that's paying for stuff that is gigantic. I, I, you know, so I can completely get it.
2: Ed breaks up with Kathy, but she doesn't take it lightly. In fact, she tries to get a little revenge on him. I imagine that she's upset because Ed breaks up with her for kind of this older, successful woman. Kathy told police that when she asked Ed about his electronic equipment, he conceded it was stolen, but said it belonged to his younger brother, Michael. Which, to me, already, I have a brother, and I'm not confident I would just sell out a sibling like that so adamantly. To me, that is a little skeptical. But, Billy, in your experience, if someone's like, oh, it's not mine, it's my sibling, is that them, you think that's them trying to save face? Like, do you have any sort of initial reactions to that at all? You
0: know what? I think when people are potentially lying, there's always a little bit of kernel of truth to it.
2: When they brought in Butch Pratt, he's very visibly nervous. He's on the edge of his seat shaking, but he denied any involvement. And let me just say, if I see police sirens in the back of my rear view mirror or police want to come in and ask me for questioning, even if I'm 100 percent innocent, I'd probably still be nervous anyway. It's just nerve wracking to kind of be around police. So him being maybe noticeably nervous, at least to me. Could have just been this visceral reaction to police, right? Philly? Sure. Like, Absol- that's, absolutely. Yeah. We've all had and we've all had that feeling when
0: you see the sirens and the you hear the sirens and you see the lights behind you. It's not a good feeling.
2: You no, know, it's terrifying. And he actually said he didn't believe Ed had anything to do with it either. This is his best friend. When they brought Ed in, it was the exact opposite. He was as cool as a cucumber and he had a thoughtful answer for everything the police were throwing at him. He's a smart guy. Ed tells police Kathy made the whole thing up because she was jealous he was dating someone new. But just as investigators are digging into the unsolved case, Kathy shocks police and recants her statement. She says she made the whole thing up in a jealous rage. Police now feel even more convinced Ed and maybe his roommate Butch are somehow involved in the burglaries. But there's nothing proving any connection. Finally, police drop the case and Ed and Butch breathe a sigh of relief. But at this point, Butch's friends back home notice a little bit of a change in him. They notice that he's spending less time in Munhall and more time with Ed during semester breaks. Butch's friend Rob spoke publicly about him.
3: The Butch Pratt I knew relished his friends. We were all important to each other. I couldn't imagine him taking something from me. And I couldn't imagine taking something from him. That's not the Butch Pratt I knew.
1: Back
2: in Greenville, Ed introduces Butch to Linda's good friend, Liz, another older woman. They hit it off, they live it up, dating, dining together all over town. These are two young college guys dating older women. And when Butch met Linda Carlin, his taste of the good life was only enhanced further. Linda runs a high-end furniture store, and within two months of dating Ed, she hires him to manage it. Then Ed brings Butch in to handle the advertising, and just like that, the two friends were in business together like they had always sort of hoped to celebrate their new roles, Linda gives them expensive furniture for their place. But Linda also took the time to buy an extra special gift. Linda bought Butch a gun. And the thing is, like I think that's a little bit of a random gift.
0: You know what? You have two young men dating two older women who have money. Just think of the amount of chicken sandwiches they were able to have.
2: You're jealous, That's going. To, that's
0: going to change anybody. So if that's the change that they're talking about, I get it.
2: <laughs> you've been there. I've been there. Uh, or you haven't been there. I and haven't you've been there. Yes, then you could have been there.
0: But uh, but yeah, no. Listen, people. Obviously, uh, colleges is one of the biggest places where you change. You know, I think the two places where you change is, uh, you know, middle school is, is a big change uh, factor. And then, you know, right after high school, those are like the two biggies that I that I've seen. And uh, this is one of the places where, yeah, something could be different. But, you know, it also depends on, like you were saying before, the type of people that you have in your life.
2: So now Butch Pratt, the high school star from one Pennsylvania, becomes the first person from his family to graduate from college. And he and his friend Ed Swiger are on top of the world. This is a major accomplishment. That is until the early morning hours of May 22nd, 1988, when suddenly the furniture store owned by Ed's girlfriend, Linda Carlin, goes up in flames and burns to the ground. Now, of all the things to go up in flames, I imagine a furniture store is uh, one of the worst because everything in there is probably tinder for the fire. So it doesn't take long for insurance investigators to suspect foul play here. How do you – I don't know how involved you are with arson, Billy, but how quickly can you kind of determine foul play from a fire?
0: Well, one of the things with arson is that it has become known as one of the potential junk sciences. You know, you got bite mark first, and then you go to arson, then you go go to blood spatter as being kind of the trifecta of three places where you get people up in the stand and they say, this happened – but then you can get somebody else up on the stand that's that's for the defense and say, no, it didn't happen. With arson, the problem is, is you have someone go in there and say, there's an accelerant that was right here. But there are so many things in your house that are accelerants that can be deemed accelerants, particularly in furniture – your cushions. I'm sitting on a on the couch right now. My my friend. That's an accelerant. If a fire started right there, and if there was enough burn, they could say, "Oh, there was an accelerant right there." But meanwhile, it was just a fire that started from a cigarette, and then eventually it burned to a place where um, it would have seemed like there was a accelerant based on the chemicals that were coming out of the couch cushions. So that's one of the the things that uh, makes arson so hard. And Tricky. when you you often see this, and there's been a lot of uh, of cases of people who have been wrongfully convicted because of that.
2: Well, I think that's why I mean, that's a very good point. And I think, you know, to kind of determine for me, when I look at a house on fire, the fact that people can kind of determine what started it is fascinating to me, whether or not that's true, just the fact that they might know it's a cigarette butt or straightener being left on Mm -hmm. or a candle. They discover, at least in this furniture store, that ceiling tiles were soaked with flammable fluid. And so to investigators, that seems like kind of a clear motive for arson. Why would there be a flammable fluid in this store? Linda had apparently been buying high-end furniture and taking out bank loans to pay for it. But these luxury items were putting her into immense debt because she wasn't selling them. So it was clear that the furniture store was kind of close to bankruptcy at the time of the fire, which seems very convenient uh, that it then goes up in flames. Investigators note that it looks like insurance fraud is happening here, and they believe Linda and Ed may have had help in this. They also had suspicions about Ed's involvement in this. A witness the night of the fire claimed to have seen him driving around in the area of the furniture building. But Ed isn't the only one who comes under suspicion. When investigators review calls made to police on the night of the fire, they uncover a strange voicemail. The caller said, quote, well, just tell them that BP called and hung up. Now, this is interesting because it makes you sort of wonder if Butch was known in any circles as BP. We haven't been hearing, I mean, obviously Butch Pratt, BP, but who casually calls the police station like this, mm-hmm. Billy? This is a weird phone call just being like, eh, just tell them that, you know, Billy uh, Billy called or whatever. That doesn't seem like a little, like when you're calling a police station, you should call with vigor, not... yeah. Casualness. No, No, this is a red flag.
0: You know, BP is also a strange name for somebody that has just one syllable and both their first and last names. If her name was like Ronald J. McGillicuddy, you would call yourself maybe R.M. But BP, Butch Pratt, it's the same effort. So, uh, but, you know. Yeah,
2: it's interesting there. And only a minute or so later, the fire call came in for the furniture building. Police play the tape for furniture store employees, hoping that they recognize the voice. Some think BP may be the voice of Butch Pratt. And now once again, the two friends are being linked as suspects in a crime. Greenville investigators head to Munhall the next day to ask Butch if the voice on the tape is his and what he may know about the fire. Butch tells police he wasn't in town when the warehouse burned down. He had returned home for four days after graduation. It was 90 minutes away in Munhall the night of the fire. Butch's alibi checks out for this crime. But in the moment, he breaks and confesses something else. Butch admits right away that he was involved in the burglaries at Teal College and reveals that he and Ed were the ones that did the burglaries. Okay, wait, let's recap and pause here, because a lot of stuff is going on here. So he says he didn't have anything to do with the fire. His alibi checks out, but he, in a sense, betrays his bestie, who he was kind of helping with before, confesses that they were the ones involved with the burglaries months ago, even though he was brought in originally this changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, this sort of opens the case wide open. And why is it, is it suspicious to you that someone would deny involvement in one crime and then immediately admit involvement in another?
0: Well, because what he's doing is, is that he's admitting to something that is a lesser crime, what he's thinking. So he knows he's got, he's got people you know breathing down his neck, asking him for something. He's going to admit to something lesser, even though he did it. He's going to admit to something lesser and say, OK, wait, wait, I, I did. All right, remember that other thing. I did that. I didn't do this thing, this crazy thing that you're talking about here, the really bad thing. But I did this other thing. So he's trying to sort of it's not even so much a bargain, but it's in his in his mind, being a young kid, being just, you know, uh, bottom line is uh, you don't talk to the cops ever. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you this right now. It's um, true. Yeah, just don't. Uh, you don't talk to the cops ever. You just don't. There, there's. You can never get anything good out of it unless there's obviously somebody that's missing or something like that. Um, but I think that that's what he's doing. He's kind of um, admitting to something smaller so they'll stop looking at him for something bigger.
2: Because I'm thinking in my mind, given the fact that his alibi checked out, which to me at least would mean he's off the hook – He didn't have to admit the other thing. I mean, he could have just walked away with his alibi checking out, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe because he's a good guy, he's an athlete, he wants a lot for his future. To your point, he might have just been like, all right, let me just come clean. If I'm already being in here a second time, like, I don't want them to come back at me now and say that I lied. Let's just deflect into this other thing. And. Butch, maybe feeling like he got so much off his chest, begins spilling it all at this point, saying that they stored the stolen items in the attic of their apartment until they could be sold by Ed's brother, Michael. And we know that Michael was sort of thrown under the bus by Ed originally for this crime. So not only did they burglarize the place, they had a premeditated motive as well. In fact, the motive, he says, was to catch a thrill and make a few bucks at the same time. Now he also confesses what he's done to his closest childhood friends. Another one of Butch's close friends spoke publicly about the moment Butch shared the information about the burglary with him.
3: He was basically telling me, you're not going to believe what I did. I did something and it's crushing me and I can't believe I did it. And he told me we robbed a fraternity over the Easter break. I knew right then this is a turning point. And Butch and I became a lot closer. He needed me. He needed his friends. He needed people that really loved him and really cared about him.
2: And at this point, Butch's lawyer came up with an offer that he hoped prosecutors couldn't refuse, saying, see what you can do for Butch. And in return, he'll give you Ed Swiger on a silver platter. Billy, this happens often, right? Like a lot of these things with sentencing is like a bargain, right? You give me this. I'll get you a lesser sentence. But does that sort of environment encourage lying to you? It can,
0: but it is used constantly and it's used for A ton of things, you know, it's used for, um, I mean, let's look at Golden State Killer, for instance, you know, he doesn't cop unless, unless death penalty is off the table. So, so much of our justice system is that kind of bargaining. And quite frankly, if we didn't have that kind of bargaining, a a lot would not get done. So you have to, you, you sort of just have to do it. It's, it's unfortunate, but, uh, it's something that is part of our legal system and, If if there was no bargaining like this, it would be it would be kind of a nightmare.
2: I imagine it would be and a lot less cases would be solved, or at least you'd probably be able to catch a lot less criminals. But it's interesting to me that so many people are sort of willing to betray their loved ones, best friends, family members to get out of their own convictions for kind of better or for worse. We're kind of all in it for ourselves and betray those people. And, you know, Butch is released on bail with a hearing scheduled for the following month. At this point, Ed is unnerved by the developments. If Butch turns him in, the future he's always planned for himself is finished. He tries to get a hold of him to see what he told police, but Butch never called him back. I imagine Butch is done with Ed at this point. But needing to clear his head, Butch decides to take a trip away from everything. He heads off to Akron, Ohio for the weekend to spend time with a girl named Teresa, who we actually met originally through Ed. But by that Monday, Butch's friend recalls getting a call from Butch's mother, wondering where the hell Butch is.
3: On Monday, I get this call from Mrs. Pratt crying. And I'd never heard her cry. i never even heard her upset before. And now she's crying on the phone to me, telling me we can't find Butch. Do you know where he is?
2: Butch's friends immediately try to track him down. They question the girl he was going to see in Akron, Teresa. But she tells them that Butch actually never arrived. And again, just painting the picture here, we have no iPhone, no find your friends, no social media. There are there are so much less clues because technology wasn't great back in the 80s uh, to kind of trace steps of where he last was. Ed Swiger came and talked with the police and he drives him around town to see if there were people that had seen Butch. So he seems active in this search, but nobody had seen Butch. Many days later, on July 24th, Butch is scheduled to appear at a court hearing for the frat house burglary, but he never shows up.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Billy, this is just not a good sign, right? I mean, like, he never makes it to Dereza. He's not. This good guy who admitted to a crime doesn't even show up for a court hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why admit everything and then not show up? Is you know what I, I
0: think? Yeah. And I think one of the, th- there's two things that they're going through, uh, the minds of definitely law enforcement is one is that, you know, could there be, be foul play because he was going to, uh, turn on his friend. Uh, the other is, could he potentially have, have gone out to harm himself? Uh, it just got too much for him and and he made that decision. So, I think there's there's two things in play right there. You can't jump to either conclusion. You just have to try and find him.
2: Well, police issue a bench warrant for his arrest. This high school shining star is now a fugitive from justice, at least according to what the police are concerned. Butch's friends and mother never stop looking for him, and neither do the police. They distribute a photo of Butch nationwide in hopes someone will recognize him and report a sighting. Friends of Butch think that he and Ed had an agreement somehow, and Ed paid him to disappear for a while, maybe saving both of their asses. 16 months go by, and Butch is still missing. Billy, is there a time constraint on—and granted, you're never going to stop looking for a missing person, but is it really true what they say kind of in that movie Taken, where it was like after 72 hours, the hope of finding this missing person just goes gravely down? Is there sort of this statute of limitations of hope with a missing person case. I
0: think uh you know the majority and we're talking about over 90% are over probably even 95%, I believe, are you know they, they find the person within uh 48 to 72 hours. Taken was a little different uh because uh you know those guys were were in the intelligence uh, community. They were able to see that These people were from a certain place. She was going to be sex trafficked. After seventy two hours, you're not going to be able to find her, uh, as as a plot device. And very well that uh, stuff like that could happen. But uh, but yeah, absolutely. Though I think you know, within the first forty eight hours is critical, and that's the problem. Especially when you're talking about adults. This is actually the next project that I'm working on. Is that when adults go missing? Police, you know, you have the right to go missing. You have the right to chill out and and, and not talk to anybody.
2: Go off the grid. But right.
0: you know, if you're an adult, the police and there's no sign of foul play, the police don't do much, and it it really is up to volunteer agencies and it's up to uh, creating something on your own in order to try and find them, which is just the uh, it's just the nature of the game.
2: Well. You know, now Linda Carlin comes back into the picture. She's being investigated for yet another arson, and this time it's her own home. This just seems like a lot of arsons for one person. She's also brooding over Ed Swiger, who's now all these months later attending law school at Temple University, just three hours away in Philadelphia. While all of this was going down with Butch, Ed broke up with Linda and now engaged to a younger woman closer to Ed's age. So breaks up with his young woman to go with an older woman, breaks up with the older woman to go with a younger woman, the Jealousy over Ed is just consuming Linda, according to people close to her, and she was confident they were going to have a wonderful married life together. Perhaps motivated by jealous rage in an attempt to get arson investigators off her back, Linda Carlin shocks police with a strange and unexpected story. She thought she could control the situation by going into the police. She could get back at Ed for him dumping her. And she had said that Ed Swiger had killed Butch and that he's buried on a farm in Pennsylvania. Okay. In your opinion, though, given the fact that this woman is kind of coming in with maybe this jealous rage, do you take everything that a witness comes forward with at face value or how much of her own maybe emotional turmoil are you taking into account when listening to a potential victim or a potential person kind of coming forward with information, Billy? Well,
0: the bottom line is, is that we still have a missing person. So this is probably their best lead. They're going to have to take it seriously. Yes, she's got a lot of things in her past, but um, you have to act on this lead.
2: Well, Linda Carlin claims he's buried close to the stream where investigators went searching, which also seems very specific detail to me. And just like that, after digging in multiple locations, given what Linda had said, investigators make a gruesome and grisly discovery. It is, in fact, the body of Butch Pratt. As they started digging deeper and removing the dirt, they found that Butch had been handcuffed behind his back and his feet had been tied, which just talk about the most helpless position I think a person could probably be. And oh. uh, this this seems just tra- traumatizing to me. The cause of death was easily determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. There was a massive hole in the front of his head, fractures from his face to the base of his skull. This is This is brutal. I mean, this is when you say somebody murdered like this, this isn't happenstance, right? This isn't like I'm trying to steal your wallet and I'm going to shoot you. This is emotional. No, this is vengeful.
0: Yeah, there's something here. I mean, it's also a matter of whether this person Remember, This is 1987. This is before CSI. This is before the OJ case. People are not as sophisticated when it comes to forensics at, at this point. Uh, whether this guy doesn't necessarily want to uh, use a gun, but uh, there is something there that says that, you know, he, he potentially could have been able to just uh, uh, murder this person without hitting them so many times uh, to the head. So there's, there's a lot going on there that looks like it definitely could be personal
2: seems it to me, and you know, Butch may be dead at this point, but his lawyer explains to police the events leading up to Butch's murder. It turns out that just weeks before the college graduation party, Linda Carlin and Ed ask Butch to help burn down Linda's furniture store. The place is in financial ruin and the insurance money could reap hundreds of thousands of dollars. Remember, she wasn't selling any of that high end furniture. It's a simple way to make some money Nothing could possibly go wrong. Right. I mean, these things are just easy. I just burn down things left and right. Mm. They had sort of become accustomed to a lifestyle that they were leading and were going to do whatever it took to maintain it, even if it meant committing arson here. When Butch confesses to police about the fraternity house robbery and threatens to reveal Ed's role in the arson, the biggest problem for Ed It's not the fact that he might have done all these things. It's clearly Butch Pratt. Butch is going to be the one to kind of get him in trouble. And just kind of imagine for a moment, you're doing all these heinous crimes and you want to go to law school, Billy? Doesn't that seem absurd? Or do you think that's kind of like this projection this doubling down or this like ego that Ed has of like, I'm smarter than everyone else in the room and I'm going to prove it by going to law school. Well, that's exactly
0: what we're seeing from Ed at this point. He's going he's trying to help. He's going around, driving around with the police, looking for... Butch, when he clearly knows, he thinks he's smarter than everyone. Bottom line.
2: He's hiding in plain sight, which I think just goes to show kind of the egoism of these killers No, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's 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 rough. And in short, was Butch was the key to putting Ed away and Ed knew it. Prosecutors say that when Ed learns of Butch's plans to visit Teresa in Akron, Ed and Linda hatch a plan to prevent Butch from testifying. Ed takes advantage of his grade school friendship with Teresa, and the night before Butch's arrival, Ed asks Teresa to arrange a private meeting between Butch and him, so they can have a heart-to-heart talk. Linda tells her, oh, by the way, uh, Butch has made another girl pregnant, which wasn't true, but Linda just told Teresa that, so to get her to kind of cooperate and set up a meeting in a secluded area, supposedly where Ed could talk to Butch. A lot of emotional li- manipulation happening here, mm-hmm. and it's... At this point, both of them used and manipulated this woman so gravely that's been a friend of Ed's since sixth grade in hopes of getting out of their own issues. Butch's friend spoke about the type of people they were. Ed and Linda
3: together, it was like pouring kerosene on a fire. Ed fueled Linda, and Linda fueled Ed. And together, that mix created a really deadly combustion.
2: As it turned out, when Teresa told everyone Butch never showed up in Akron... She was lying. In fact, she and her roommate, Caroline, had him picked up as planned, but they didn't take him back to their apartment. Instead, in a carefully orchestrated scheme, they deliver Butch to Ed and his brother, Michael, on an abandoned access road. Which just kind of makes me wonder a little bit. And I guess this is why Teresa was sort of told that Butch made Butch got another woman pregnant is to sort of be like, you know, Teresa's so mad at Butch that she'll kind of go along with this scheme of just picking him up and, you know, abandoning him on an access road, right? I mean, this it's, is just kind of grooming for yes. that.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what that was. That was grooming. And even still, that doesn't, that doesn't let her off the hook. But, sure. you know, this is what Ed is doing. Ed is trying to manipulate everyone. Now, you know, Ed's in survival mode now. He's just trying to survive.
2: And Ed and his brother Michael wait for him. And as the car drives away, the women see Butch fall to his knees, kind of in the rear rearview mirror. Prosecutors believe that Ed and Michael beat Butch. Then Ed repeatedly strikes Butch's head with a rock. And remember, he was found with handcuffs in his feet tied Ed and his brother then put butch's body in the trunk of the car and pick up Linda Carlin who's been waiting nearby they drive to a farm back in Pennsylvania where Linda once lived and bury the body they wash the car to get rid of any blood and head back to Greenville believing they've gotten away with a perfect murder but Ed wasn't quite wired quite right if you if you want to say that I mean how do you do that to your best friend how do you do that to somebody you know how it's just like how do you do that to your brother in a lot of ways, someone who have already sort of committed one crime with your kind of blood brothers in so many ways? That's what kind of gives me nightmares about this is that, like, if you can't trust someone who almost you're considered family, you can't really trust anyone here, Billy.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's clear that and listen, there's no honor among thieves. Obviously, Ed was a very manipulative individual. I would say if he took the sociopath test, he would he would pass. Uh, he is just thinking about himself and he does not value human life. He's just thinking about how am I, go- what's going to be best for me? And uh, that is entirely what has been driving him this entire way.
2: I mean, serial killers or psychopaths or someone, you know, like this, they have a, they can have a pretty high IQ. It kind of can manifest itself in a bad way, but also in a good way, kind mm-hmm. of being on this Richter scale of smartness and, One of Butch's closest friends talked about the sadness of losing a friend in such a brutal way.
3: When I think about what he underwent, you wouldn't want to hear that that happened to anybody, let alone somebody that you love dearly. A hatred welled up inside of me for those people. I shook Ed Swiger's hand and thanked him for his help. And that hand a week earlier broke every bone in my friend's head. That does not sit well with me to this day.
2: I mean, these are some powerful words from friends who knew Butch the closest. How often, Billy, I'm curious if you can kind of ballpark it for me. How often are murders committed by someone the victim knows and trusts?
0: More often than not, and especially when you're talking about, um, murders that happen uh, that are non-gun related murders. So we're talking about, we're getting into the two thirds, three quarters, um, uh, even higher than that. Probably I should know this number, but it is, uh, you know, when you have something that is, that is like this, uh, the person that kn- somebody that knows or somebody that, uh, uh trusts, it happens a lot.
2: Yeah. It's just wild. I mean, while this case is just absolutely beyond brutal, the good news, though, is that some justice was served here. Linda Carlin served 15 years for conspiracy to kidnap and 10 years for arson. Ed Swiger's brother, Michael, served 15 years for kidnapping and involuntary manslaughter and is now an author, actually. So perchance turned his life around. And Ed Swiger is actually serving a life sentence for aggravated murder and kidnapping. Do these seem like fair sentences? I mean, you know, we sort of know that Ed's, you know, still there, but but Linda and brother serve their time. Do these seem right to you, Billy?
0: No, they seem pretty you, low. You see? <laughs> yeah. For
2: all three of them? All three think of that they them seem pretty
0: low. Yeah. Bottom line. Wow. You know, um, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, considering that Michael, and I don't know whether, my, if my, Michael might have flipped on his brother to give testimony to his brother, and that's why he got the 15 years. I'm not sure about that. But uh, it's 15 years for, you know, they're calling it involuntary manslaughter. That had, he had to have made a deal. I can't, you know, because the, how could that be? You know, you're, you're, you've you got right. somebody tied up and you're beating the hell out of him. Ed gets aggravated murder. How do you get manslaughter? That had to, I'm, I got to think that had to have been a deal,
2: you know? Right, right. Well, this story of brotherly betrayal really pulled at our heartstrings. Billy, thank you so much for joining me today for this heart-wrenching episode, this gut-wrenching episode. Where can people find you on social media in case they want to DM you a grilled chicken sandwich? Don't be getting that breaded stuff for Billy. He's a classy guy. Where can people find you in all of your projects, You
0: can find me uh, at Billy Jensen on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, You could find uh, me at, uh, I think it's like at Jensen and Hulls on Instagram, uh, at the first degree for that one, Unraveled. It's all there. And um, yeah, got a lot of stuff coming up. A lot of, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, work on a lot of things during the pandemic and uh, shoot some things for Discovery Plus during the pandemic. So there's going to be a lot of uh, interesting and and, uh, great content coming up within the next 12 months, really.
2: Well, we can't wait for all of that. Billy, you are a wealth of of youth and a wealth <laughs> of knowledge. Uh, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: And thanks for everyone who's listening. I'll see you on another episode of Betrayal. For fan reactions and more, head over to CrimeFeed.com slash podcasts. And for more true crime TV like this, be sure to download the Discovery Plus app today.